So I, I'm reading Revelation at about, about a beast coming up out of the sea. Well, I had just watched Godzilla on <laughs> the, awesome. the old black and white Godzilla. Yeah. And I thought, this is like Godzilla, you know, a beast coming to the sea. <laughs> so I asked my mother about it. And she said, now remember, she's a fundamentalist, right? But she right. said, well, Brian, that's, you can't take that literally. It's not a literal monster coming out of the sea. Wow. And I remember thinking, oh no, my mother's a liberal. <laughs> 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 Welcome to episode 39 of Pub Theology Live, a weekly conversation on life and faith over a craft brewed pint, a fine wine, or maybe some smooth whiskey. You can watch us live Tuesdays, 9 p.m. Eastern at pubtheology.com or via YouTube. Listen anytime on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. Tonight's episode is brought to you by our official sponsors including Craft Beer Cellar, who is the home of premium craft brews, and their primary focus is amazing beer education and hospitality. Visit craftbeercellar.com for a location near you, and you can win free beer from them if you join our conversation on Twitter or Facebook using hashtag PTLive, or new for 2017, you can call in and leave a voicemail at 980 980- PT Live Zero or 980-785-4830. And we do want to congratulate our December winner, Kathleen Kerswig. Kathleen, we'll be in touch about how to get your um, gift card to craft your seller your way. Woohoo. And we are also sponsored by Wink, the wine club, W-I-N-C. They feature superbly crafted wines delivered right to your door. And I know some of you might think, you know, you've had bad experiences with wine clubs. They send you stuff you don't like. Here's a great thing about Wink. You go to their website. You do what they call a palate profile. They ask you questions about your taste and palate to recommend wines, and they send them to you. And here's the thing. If you don't like the wine, don't pay for it. You can send the bottle back. You can skip a month. You can you can end your membership at any time. I've been a, a customer now for a few months. Um, I love them. And you can get $20 off your first order if you go to trywink.com slash ptlive. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C, trywink.com ptlive. That's 20 bucks off your first order and some other savings. So enjoy. So it's a pallet test. I thought you said pellet test. You know, maybe they just fire a few things your way and see what sticks. Well, that's one way to see what your preference is. No, <laughs> no, 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 pallet, pallet test you know do you like your wines dry smooth fruity all that kind of stuff you fill out a little questionnaire to send you good stuff perfect perfect and ogan reminded me before the show that it's actually about a year ago that we started this podcast so kind of our one year anniversary which snuck up on us and true to form like last year we are competing with president obama last year this time he was given the state of the union address and this year uh, at this hour he's given his farewell speech so we don't have quite the uh, quite the ratings, but we're working on it. We're working on it. <laughs> All right. Well, tonight we are joined by guest Brian McLaren, author of many books that have helped a lot of folks, including Ooh. myself, 
reimagine faith as something larger, more beautiful, more justice-minded and inclusive. And his latest book is The Great Spiritual Migration, How the World's Largest Religion is Seeking a Better Way to Be Christian. So we're going to hit on some themes from that book and uh, have some conversation with Brian. So welcome, Brian. I'm honored to be with you guys. And my name is Brian uh, as well, Brian Burkoff. I am the pastor of Holland UCC in Holland, Michigan, and author of the book Pub Theology, Beer, Conversation, and God. And tonight I am drinking a Islamorada citrus ale. And Isla Morada. Thank you for correcting me on that. <laughs> and well, it, that, just, that just ruled out them ever being a sponsor. <laughs> I just lost the sponsor. It is a citrus pale ale that uh, Brian picked up for us, brewed right down here uh, in the Florida Keys, I believe. That's right. So there you go. And with us, as always, is Ogan Holder. Welcome, Ogan. Thank you. And and before I share what I'm drinking, uh, best uh, wishes and prayers for health for Tina. She is like really under the weather tonight and couldn't join us. But in her honor and in honor of our new sponsor, I'm drinking wine tonight. Um, I'm drinking something called a copycat. And from Wink, and the other cool thing about Wink is they've been introducing me to a lot of new types of wines I didn't even know existed. This is a 2015 Barbera, and I had a look at what Barbera is, and, and it's, it's kind of an obscure Italian wine that, you know, depending on what website you read, the Italians were kind of like uh, keeping it secret for a while because they didn't want the rest of the world in on this really nice Wine. We got uh, juicy cherry flavors, spices, pepper undertones of lavender. Um, it is. It is a tasty. It's a tasty brew. So is that on the sweeter end or drier or what's your? Uh, no, this is this is on the sweeter one. Excuse my ferocious Pekingese barking in the background. Uh, sorry, Shih Tzu. Yes, this is more of a sweeter, more flavorful. So no, right. not, not so dry. What's our friend Brian drinking? It's, it's, I'm working on this Isla Mirada too. Uh, okay. I, gotcha. I live down in Southwest Florida, so this is you, you have to go a ways to get a local beer here. So Isla Mirada is about as close as we can go. Gotcha. And just for listeners, uh, Brian and I uh, had this discussion earlier. How would I distinguish between which Brian I'm talking to? Because now we got two Brians. Um, so um, I'm just going with last names: Berghoff and McLaren. Sound like a <laughs> sound like a hit TV cop show. That's uh, right. There it we does. go. That I, sounds like trouble. I think we had to work on that. All right. So our opening question tonight is what interest haven't you pursued, but have always wanted to and what draws you to it? And yeah, well, I, I'll tell you, I really wanted to be a billionaire real estate mogul and I just haven't been able to get started on it yet. So. Nice. Well played. well played. But uh, the truth is I'm a nature guy. I love birds and animals and wildlife and all that. Uh, but I've never really learned about astronomy. And I wish, you know, I can identify a couple of planets and con- constellations. But I, that's something I wish I knew more about. Hmm. Nice. And uh, it, one reason why that's an interest for me now is I live most of my life near Washington, D.C., where the light pollution is so, you know, strong that you uh, might see four stars <laughs> on a clear night. Right. And uh, where I live now, it's, you know, the stars are very bright, especially in the winter when the air is dry. And, oh, it's uh, so a lot going on there. Yeah. Wow. Where did you uh, where did where do you spend most of your time outside D.C.? I used to live in the D.C. area myself. 
Um, well, I, I uh, started in Montgomery County. I lived in Kensington and Rockville. Uh, and then when we had kids, we were in PG County, Prince George's County. And I raised, we raised our kids in Riverdale and Laurel. Oh, yeah. oh, my neck of the woods. I used to live in Gaithersburg. Yeah, well, I went to Perry High School in Rockville, so we would have played. I know where that is. Uh, it, it, went out of, it went out of business or it closed down. But, oh. uh, yeah. Um, the thing I want to do, um, wingsuit base jumping. Ooh. Have you seen? You know what I'm talking about. I do. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to try it because I want to stay alive right now. Um, maybe, you know, my daughter's a little older. I have a 16-year-old daughter, so I know she wants me to stay around. But, um, you know, to, to... As soon as your last college tuition gets paid, that you... Oh, you got that right, my friend. <laughs> oh, you, it's like it's like hearing my head. Um, yeah. The, the idea of, you know, I'm not so much of a nature person, but when I watched videos of those guys just gliding over the forest and between the cliffs and uh, stuff like that in that in that wingsuit. I I so want to do that. It it seems the closest thing to being a bird and just having that freedom of flight. Granted, what it really is is just you know falling slowly, but still, <laughs> I, I want to give it a try someday. And so, do you think you'd really do it? You would do this. You know, I I I think I would. It uh it would. I I wouldn't go into it um. Uh, carelessly, uh, you know, a lot of training, maybe do a few parachute jumps first. Um, big insurance policy, big life insurance policy, you know, double the one I already have. Maybe do a few flights in those like uh, those uh, skydiving oh, simulators. Yes. First. But um, but I also got to remember when those guys do that, they, they are also wearing a parachute. So, you know, there's there's the backup. But no, I, ser- I seriously do want to try it um, at some point in time. It looks amazing. Yeah, it always reminds me of like a human flying squirrel when you see yes. it. You know, it's like the webbed, you know, you think of a, a flying squirrel uh, riding on the wind. Yeah. Nice. So uh, my interest, I guess, that I, among others that I haven't pursued, uh, would be sailing. Hmm. Been sailing a few times with friends. Um, and it's just something beautiful about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I like being on the water in any form, so I'm not going to be too picky about the kind of boat. But something about sailing is beautiful because mm-hmm. it's it's an older form of boating. Uh, you're relying on wind and nature. There's a lot of work uh, to do it. You got to. It's a craft, you know. It's something you really have to know what you're doing. Uh, and so, getting a little taste of that, the, the several times I've done it. Has made me think I could I could really do that. And now here's a real question: If you run into trouble and the boat starts to go down, do you think you have enough faith to walk on water? <laughs> no, which is why I would have a life raft. And a life said no. <laughs> I admire your honesty. <laughs> Transmission button, absolutely. So there you go. Well, uh, Brian. The subtitle of your latest book, as we noted in the intro, is intriguing. How the world's largest religion is seeking a better way to be Christian. So I'm interested in what some of the ways are that you've perceived Christianity has been done less well than it might be and what might prompt a pursuit of a better way. Yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the worst things uh, that happens to a lot of people 
who prepare for ministry by going to seminary is they start taking some church history courses <laughs> or, or even people who just get a bachelor's degree and take some basic, you know, Western Civ courses. And you, you learn about the role of the Christian faith in, in some of the darkest sides of, of history. Uh, so uh, one of the really tragic things that happened was about 50 years before Columbus uh, there was a pope and uh, named uh, Pope Nicholas V, and he issued something a lot of people have never heard of. It, it's, it, was, it was a papal bull, um, which is a papal pronouncement. It was like a letter to the kings of Europe, and it basically told the kings of Europe to go into all the world and not preach the gospel, but go into all the world and not make disciples, but to go into all the world and make slaves and plunder nations and bring, and basically he was giving them permission to, for, for what we now call the conquistadors and the colonial era. And that document unleashed horror and wrong that caused, you know, that literally tens of millions of lives um, are, are in the aftermath of that, of that document. And tragically, most Christians today are completely unaware of it. And, and they're also unaware of how when a religion is part of a colonial project like that, they're unaware of how that changes the way they do everything. It mm -hmm. changes the way they do theology. It changes the way they do money and power. It changes the way do, they do relationships with, uh, with politics and so on. So, uh, you know, I, I think one of the, the better ways to be Christian that we have to figure out is how to be Christian in a non-colonial or post-colonial way, hopefully humbled by the, the wrongs of, of colonialism. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, you probably that, need a, probably we should have chosen whiskey rather than beer. Yeah, right, exactly, exactly. You <laughs> needed a, another beverage just to recover. Now, do, you, do, do you think in some way, even though you say most people aren't aware of of that fact and that piece of the church's, you know, unfortunate dark history. Do you think it's that, um, let me ask you this. Was that really where that idea of the domineering, the culturally domineering aspect of church began, um, that has continued for a while. And maybe that's why so many people are turned off from church even today, because they don't, they, they still see church as this, authoritarian, yeah. uh, almost colonizing type entity, even if it's now not on a, on a, you know, nation level, it's definitely on a perhaps personal level and they don't want to be associated with that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, I, I think when you try to trace back in history where this all starts, I mean, it starts a lot of different ways and a lot of different stages. Um, uh, and, and you might even say that the kind of way of life that, that I think Jesus was talking about, people just haven't been ready for for 2000 years. So it, instead of even saying, where did we go wrong? We might just say, why haven't we been ready to have a change? You know? mm. um, and I think we're, we realize we keep getting in these situations where we have to take the next step. 
a friend of mine a few years ago wrote a book called Compassion or Apocalypse. Wow. <laughs> and uh, I think there's some truth to that. We, we reach, we're reaching a point where we need to learn those lessons uh, very, very literally our, our future, you know, is at stake uh, with, with it. But um, I, I think it's, this is especially relevant in America today because part of what was unleashed in, in the mid-1400s resulted in the slaughter of the Native Americans and the attempted genocide of the Native peoples of both North, Central, and South America, which happened along with the Christianization and, you know, right. certain sense of the, of, of this uh, hemisphere. And it was implicit in the, or complicit in the slave trade uh, and, and the ongoing legacy of racism. And, and uh, it also was implicit in the industrial revolution. Well, and the Holocaust as well. And, and uh, obviously you're exactly right. The Holocaust as well. And, and so the plundering of the earth and the exploitation and oppression of people have just gone in the wake of this whole thing. And, and so we better figure out a way to be Christian uh, in, in the next few centuries that, uh, that le- leads to the betterment of all people and to the restoration and healing of the planet. So, so you know, that, that would be a, pretty important dimension to this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I I wonder if some of those seeds of, I mean, I guess maybe this is obvious, but some of the seeds of that connection between nation and religion and empire and faith and colonialist expressions of faith is, is that initial co-option of the faith in the Roman empire in the fourth century, in the fourth century under yeah. Constantine, yeah. and you know you kind of have this initial small sect under an oppressed people under the empire, but then when it flips around, suddenly power is integrated with faith, and it almost yeah. becomes unrecognizable, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, what what happened in the fourth century, it, you could say, was the one of the first really significant reversals of of Christianity, where Christianity went from being a persecuted religion to being a persecuting religion. Right. Um, When it went from being a nonviolent religion to a religion that was very happy to employ violence uh, in, in, uh, in its uh, complicity with, with the emperor. Um, uh, You know, if we wanted to go back farther though, the truth is in the new Testament itself, the ideals that Jesus and the apostles aspired to, you see they're being betrayed left and right because we human beings are a mess. You know? <laughs> and, and so we've all, we're always struggling with this. Um, you, you know, you see Jews and Gentiles having all kinds of struggles. You see people judging each other over what they eat or over uh, which holiday they observe. So the struggle is even there in the very beginning. Creation was perfect until day six. That's when the human showed up. <laughs> all, right. all downhill after that <laughs> but, so let me ask this though um so so you know in what you're saying though it it uh, i think you're making allusions and parallels to to yes the catholic church because the you know the universal church that was around you know n- then we had the protestant reformation has the protestant church really done any much of a better job for me it almost uh, appears that in this day and age, um, it, it's it's like you almost have to be—I don't want to say non-denominational, but 
even churches that are affiliated with the denomination, the 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 emphasis has shift has to shift from saving souls to saving lives, and yeah. sometimes that that goes against the doctrine of mainstream and mainline churches. Well, th- this has really been a theme of my writing for a long time. Uh, you know, so many of the assumptions that go way back into the early centuries of the Christian faith, they were, assu- they were assumptions that turned the Christian religion into what I call an evacuation plan. How do we get souls out of off the earth and up into heaven? Um, uh, but I think really what Jesus was talking about was not an evacuation plan. It was a transformation plan. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus didn't teach people to to pray, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That's somebody else's prayer. Jesus' prayer was, may your kingdom come here to earth. May your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So that whole focus is about the transformation of this world, not the evacuation and abandonment. Uh, of this world by the way that that prayer meant caused me many a nightmare as a kid uh, <laughs> I, was, I was scared to go to sleep because i was like wait you're saying am i dying in my sleep like what kind of prayer is that that's right so for a sensitive soul that can uh, really really ruin their sleep <laughs> it, it was it was it was not it was not fun no and you know i, I think many folks who have grown up in, let's say, a broadly evangelical setting where uh, salvation in terms of going to heaven has been such a key core uh, precept, maybe even the point of yeah. religion. What kind of helped prompt you to, to reevaluate and, yeah. and, and say, no, is there, is there more depth to this? Is there more to it than just mm. you're in or you're out or heaven or hell is the sort of <laughs> bottom line? Well, could, could I share two anecdotes about that? I, I, I had been a pastor for some years and I, had, I, I never liked religious radio. It all, I always felt like whenever I listened to Christian radio, it made me not want to be a Christian. Um, but I was listening to some secular radio station and some religious guy says, we well, you know Jesus wasn't really about going to heaven. Jesus was really about changing this earth. And I remember thinking, he is so wrong. He is so wrong. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and then years later, I, I was having lunch with this guy who's kind of a famous evangelical writer. And I, his books had helped me and he was going to be in my town. And I managed to contact his secretary and see if I could have lunch with him. Yeah. And so we're in this Chinese restaurant and he says, he had a British accent. He says, well, Brian, he said, most evangelicals don't have the foggiest notion of what the gospel really is. And I was from an evangelical background. I thought he was an evangelical. And I remember thinking, he sounds like a heretic. What's he saying? And uh, so I just kind of looked down at my soup, you know, and tried to keep slurping my soup without having to answer. And he wouldn't let me off the hook. He says, well, for example, Brian, how would you define the gospel? And so I, you know, said what I'd been taught about justification by grace through faith and, uh, and so on. Uh, and, and then he said, well, that's exactly what most evangelicals would say. So now I'm thinking, I'm really having lunch with a heretic. What's going on? And, and then I said, well, how would you define the gospel? And then he says, you know, and you never like it when people bring Jesus in on these things. He says, well, all of your definitions 
are referring to the book of Romans and the writings of Paul. Don't you think we should let Jesus define the gospel? And I remember thinking, I have no idea what you're talking about. And, and he then said, for Jesus, the, the gospel was the kingdom of God is at hand. And uh, he said, shouldn't that be the gospel for us? Well, I remember thinking I've been, you know, I, I, how old was I? I was in my mid-30s at the time. And I, I remember thinking, I've been a pastor for some years. I remember thinking, I have no idea what he's talking about. And I remember thinking, the kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. And I realized that I could be a Christian leader from my background. I heard kingdom of God. I thought kingdom of heaven. I thought kingdom of heaven, going to heaven when you die. But I never questioned that before. Mm. And that's what really began. I kind of cracked open that curiosity. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I was really upset and disturbed. And, yeah. They love that. I, I, I love when we have those moments where somebody introduces something to us that does break us open and sends us a little bit deeper. I think, I think that's the whole process of, you know, any faith tradition, crack you open, go deeper, crack you open, go deeper, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And there is, and there's no bottom. And, and I, and I think folks get frustrated because they get caught up in this idea of I've got to get to a certain place of understanding or enlightenment or, or salvation, whatever. There, there is no bottom to this. You just keep going deeper and deeper in understanding. And the key is, I think, as we go deeper in our understanding, we also have to go um, deeper and more expansive in how we embody that in our day-to-day -day living. And I think that's, that's, that's the trick right there. Mm. That kind of keeps you humble too, doesn't it? Because oh yeah, I, I think I, 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 in my younger years, I wanted to get the formula. I wanted to get everything figured out. And then I could just spend the rest of my life being an expert. <laughs> but here's the thing. Uh, and, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. <laughs> and that's what happened. Exactly right. So, so your, um, your book that's out right now, uh, The Great Spiritual Migration, tell us a little bit about that title. Uh, because migration kind of implies you're you're at some place, but you're going somewhere else. Yeah. So tell us a little well, bit it's about really, it. Well, it's really what we were just saying. You know, it's the idea that we haven't arrived, that we're on a journey, that we're not finished yet, that we're still, uh, we're still on the move. And so th that's kind of the big idea. Um, the backdrop to it is that churches in the West, by and large, know that they're in trouble. They're shrinking and wrinkling. You know, they're, they're getting older. Uh, and they're getting smaller. Uh, that, this isn't true everywhere. There are parts in the world where birth rates are really high, and uh, but but in the West, by and large, this is true. And so more and more people realize that the future is going to be different from the past. And what a lot of people have done in recent decades is they said, well, you know what our problem is? We just need guitars instead of organs, and then all of our problems will be solved, you know. Um, and we've had any number of, you know, uh, uh, one, you know, silver bullet solutions like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But I think what's, ha what's happening on a deeper level in recent years is people are saying, no, our issues are much, much deeper. There is something much more profound going on. And so in the book, I talk about three kinds of migrations that I don't think are a, a, a done deal. Mm. I, I'm not trying to be a reporter here. I'm being an advocate. Um, 
these are things that are in the beginning stages, but could easily be squashed. They're fragile, but they're migrations that I think need to happen. Uh, and, and the first is what I call a spiritual migration. And that is a migration from defining faith as a system of beliefs to defining our faith as a way of life. And that is really easy to say. And yes. I think there are a whole lot of people that will nod their heads and say, well, yeah, that's right. But I'll tell you, there are a whole lot of people who will not swallow that uh, easily. Um, and I wouldn't, I, I didn't say this in the book without a lot of thought. I, but I actually think we're at a point where we have to have the courage to say, we've defined ourselves as a system of belief for over a thousand years. Um, I don't think we did at the beginning, but I, I think we have for over a thousand years. And, and I think now we have to say that has not been the best path. There's been always been a minority report, in, even in the Western Christian tradition, uh, of people who said, you know what this is really about is a way of life. I mean, St. Francis is the, is the great example of this. This is a way of life. It's not just a system of belief. But um, well, we've got to get over it. And if we do, it will change everything for us. You know? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the second, it, it has to do with our understanding of God. And one of the effects of having a system of belief to define our faith is it helped us create it had all kinds of political ramifications that allowed the kind of tragedies we were talking about a few minutes ago. Um, if, if, in a sense, requiring you to sign the statement that we have the right beliefs is a kind of pledge of allegiance. And that has a lot of power for leaders right. to get you to, to say, I believe these things, which means now I have to submit to your authority. That's right. And, and the result of that is that God has become a weapon in political and economic battles. And so the way I say this is the second migration is a theological migration from a, from a violent tribal God, a God who is good to us and really bad to them, uh, to an understanding of God as a God of love for all. Mm. Uh, so that's the second. Okay. And then the third is what I call a missional migration, which talks about, which explores the idea that we're, we're moving from organized religion to organizing religion. In other words, we're moving from religion that's organized for self-preservation of a set of institutions and a privileged class of clergy and all the rest to a community that's actually organizing people to be equipped and, and, and inspired to, to be agents of change, change agents. Exactly. Change agents. I like that from organized to organizing. That's cool. Yeah. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pastor to church here. Um, I don't know if Brian told you my, uh, I'm, I'm a unity minister. Um, so yes. um, the, the, the uh, metaphor I like to use is if you think of the, you know, Christianity as the big tent unity, we're like, you know, a on the tent flat blowing in the breeze <laughs> <laughs> over there. But um but we, but our our church, um, you know, when you spoke to about the, you know, the guitars and the music and stuff, our church has, I mean, um, I've been the minister for two years. I'm the second minister they've had, and this is a church that's been around now going on 20 years. The founding minister only retired like three years ago. Um, but but it's it's a they've prided themselves as being a center of celebration, celebrating you know, divinity and spirituality and, and, and the Sunday service and the music that comes along with that. 
um, reflects that. And, and, and I'm, I'm a great supporter of that. I, I love the fact that we have this amazing uh, band and we're doing, um, you know, all really good kinds of music, blues, jazz, gospel, mm. all the above. But, but one of the things that I realized over the last two years you know, when I landed, they, they was like, well, what's your vision vision for the church? And people were asking me this, like, on a weekly basis when I first showed up. And, and my, you know, I'm like, I don't even know everybody's name yet. Like, just give me a <laughs> Um, um, but, but I realized that, that, that underneath all of that, like celebration and, and like, like enthusiasm, energy and, and, and all of that, there were still so many people who were in pain and hurting and needed support and connection. And, and what I realized was there's a real, there's a real call for healing here Mm. at all levels you know and and many people felt that they couldn't they couldn't come be a part of our community when they were in a place of pain and loss and suffering because they weren't yes. showing up with that enthusiasm and energy mm. and you know i was like that's that's not okay if, if if spiritual community if the church is not here to support you in this time then what good are we mm. so 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 you know for me I, this year when we look at the theme that we have this year i said uh you know, we're being called, I think, to be agents of healing here hmm. for this community. And when we open our doors for that, be prepared that the people who need healing are going to show up. <laughs> yeah. And it's not necessarily going to look pretty and it's going to it's going to push our buttons. But but I believe that's who we're being called to be because we're not being authentic to our our spiritual journey if we don't acknowledge that. That, that, that we are here for each other, not just in the times when we can be joyful and celebratory, but in the times of sadness and, and pain and loss and, and suffering. This is the time we need each other most. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, been a, it's been an interesting uh, you know, transition going into that, and we're really going to be stepping into that this year. So um, uh, it'll be interesting to see how people respond because uh, people want – you know, I get a lot of, you know, I, I want to come to church to feel and leave feeling better than I arrived. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of that energy as well. And um, so it'll be interesting to see how, how people relate to that. Because when you set an intention to be a place for healing, like mm. I said, the people who need healing are going to show up. And yeah. it's going to be interesting. Yeah. That's well done, Ogan, and I think that takes uh, some bravery to step into a, a setting where they have a, a history that uh, predates you, of course, by quite a bit, and they've come out of one pastor who they've known, and they've kind of set their DNA or style of being, and for you to intuit that there's other things also that are going on, and we need to make space for that. I think that's yeah. that's well done, and I think it speaks to some of what Brian was talking about earlier about sort of this whole wholeness to the gospel that does speak to healing in our lives individually, in our uh, cities, neighborhoods, communities, uh, and of course, our larger world. And if we're going to talk about healing, we got to have space for the pain. Yeah. And I think it is hard for us to do that in worship because we want it to be, we, many of us, we just want it to be positive. We want people to have a feel good experience mm-hmm. and to come away feeling good about life. But we also need moments where we share our brokenness and where we lament and where we have space to cry together. It's hard to do that and do it well, but we got to try, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus was a, Jesus was a party animal, but he was also a healer. We, we, we seem to forget that. 
That's right. So we should be as well. So, um, and maybe we've hit this already, but you note near the beginning of the book about coming to see Christian faith as a journey rather than a static location. And uh, a quote from the book, you say, I've come to see that what matters most is not our status, but our trajectory, not where we are, but where we're going, not where we stand, but where we're headed. And I, I love that because I certainly grew up in uh, in a system of faith where it really was about where you stood and it really was about arriving to a point and now you're sort of approved and you're in yeah. and growth was almost an afterthought. It's kind of like once you uh, agree or make profession of faith to these certain theological propositions, yeah. welcome to the club. Yeah. You're in. Uh, yeah, but, and, and, and a big part then of the, what you're going to do is figure out how to persuade other people to yes. learn the information and also be right like, like us, you know. Yeah. Um, but there's a whole different set of journeys that we go on. And, and I think, uh, Ogan, what you just said about, about helping people get in touch with their pain and, and not have to hide their pain. Yeah. Uh, you know, the term that some people use for that is for, for people to learn to do their inner work. And uh, yeah, that's a big, that's a big part of, of uh, this journey as well. I think this happens on an individual level. Uh, you know, it's really interesting. I was so serious about being a good father. I, I have four adult children and now five grandchildren, but I was so serious about being a good father and I worked so hard at it. And a couple of years ago, I just felt this huge wave of grief begin to rise in me where I thought, I tried so hard and I wish I hadn't tried so hard. I would have been a better father if I hadn't, you know? Uh, yes. Um, and I don't think I could have told myself that earlier. I actually think it's part of being a good father. I've had conversations with some of my kids where I've just said, you know what? I did my best, but I'm really sorry. <laughs> you, know, you deserve so much better. And I, if I were doing it today, I'd, I'd be different in a lot of ways, you know? Um, but that's part of the journey. You know, we're, we're never done. Yes. And I'm, I'm just trying to keep my kid alive. So I'm not trying as hard as you are. No. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> but I also think uh, there's a, a communal dimension to this mm. as well. Um, and uh, there, there was a, one of the early theologians in the Christian church was a guy named Gregory of Nyssa. And Gregory of Nyssa had an interesting, he, a lot of his fellow theologians didn't like him. They, they felt he, he was a bit of trouble. Maybe that's why I like him. But uh, Gregory of Nyssa said, uh, Gregory of Nyssa didn't believe in perfection. He didn't believe you could ever arrive at a state of perfection. He felt that there was infinite progression um, and that, that we would, there would always be more. And he then defined sin. He said, sin is essentially a refusal to grow. And I think that's true for us as individuals, but I also think it's true for communities. And, and it's an interesting way to think about our different faith communities, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, secularism, whatever. You, you might say, if you refuse to grow, you start becoming stagnant, you, you become pro proud, you become complacent and ironically you destroy yourself, you know? Right. So this sense that we're all being called to grow individually and communally, I mean, it's true of nations. I think it's true of civilizations and, and, 
anyway, that's a that's if there's one idea underneath this image of migration that I hope people could get, it's that sense that we're embarked and we're on yes, a, a I love voyage. It. I love it. And I love that Gregory of Nyssa quote, the sin is a refusal to grow. And I just love discovering those little pieces of wisdom that come so much earlier in the Christian tradition, because it's always, Hey, we have so much richness and depth alongside the yucky stuff in yes, our history. And exactly. if we can unearth some of that wisdom, it, it lends some connection, some historicity, it's not like we're inventing new things. We're actually trying to, you know, always uncover some of what's already always been there, but we've kind of buried it. So I like that. At what point do we, do, do we, uh, cause I'm, I'm a real, like, you know, middle ground kind of, you know, Buddhist perspective. So, so that idea of, um, I, I agree with what you're saying about the growth. And I think, I don't know if in that word you're implying, uh, evolving, um, mm-hmm. and expanding, and at the same time, there's there's that piece of what is what is the um, almost original thread that kind of needs to remain, yes. so that we don't like careen so much off course <laughs> yeah. that we grow and evolve maybe into something that is totally unrecognizable and off base, um, and 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 kind of doing that dance uh, between the two. I think I think that's that's part of the challenge when it comes to, you know, growing, growing and evolving. You know, I, I, I think that's true. Uh, when I first started writing, uh, Ogan, I, I had a lot of people criticize me and they, you know, I remember one time I was speaking at this place and after open up for questions and this guy came up to the mic and he said, who gives you the authority to make up your own religion and call it Christianity? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so, you know, that was a legitimate, uh, legitimate concern. And, uh, and another way people would say that is they would say, you know, there's a slippery slope. And when you depart from the, the the norms, you'll go down a slippery slope. And, And it took me a while to realize what I really wanted to say to them is listen, I, I'm aware of the slippery slope. My problem is I think we slid down it a long time ago. <laughs> I think we're down at the bottom. Or we're, we could get worse. I'm sure we could get worse, but we've slid down a long way. And I'm interested in us climbing back up, you know, climbing again. Right. So, exactly. Uh, and, and this is the problem. When, when you know, I, let's just talk about as Christians, when you have a religion that says you don't really need to care about the environment, you don't really need to care about the earth. Just make a lot of money, uh, give a lot of money to the church, and we're all going to die, and God's going to destroy the world anyway. Who cares about the earth? Well, you know what? I, I think you've slid pretty far down the slope if you say that. Um, if you have, you know, the, the old saying that the church is the most segregated hour, that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. Yeah. Well, you know what? For a religion that was started by somebody who is all about inviting people to the table who are different, when we have the most segregated hour, we've already slid pretty far down the slope. Uh, when, you know, when the number one impression that young people have of the Christian religion is that it's anti-gay, we've slid pretty far down the slope. So yep. that's why it's very true. You can't just make the religion into anything you want. And I would say a case in point is look at what we've got. <laughs> well done. I think that was a little preaching we got right there. Absolutely. And, 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 and yeah, that original thread, like I'm, like I was talking about that original thread, you just mentioned it, invite in 
those who are different from us and 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 inviting everyone to the table yeah jesus jesus ate with everyone from the tax collectors to the lepers uh uh, women, everyone, everyone was was welcome into his his sphere, into his his circle, and somehow, yeah, we kind of lost that. And, and, and you know, I think there's something incredibly profound uh, in, in in that example because who you eat with, in a sense, is saying who is in your tribe. Mm-hmm. And one of our great struggles uh, is. We, we human beings love to shrink the size of our tribe and then go to war with other tribes. And um, my gosh, we feel it in our polarization between Democrats and Republicans, but it's happening around the world in different ways. And it seems to me we're at a point in human evolution, human history, when we have to say, you know what, we all share this planet. We got to understand. We have all kinds of diversity in our different tribes, but we've got to see ourselves as one big tribe too. Then, where our destiny is bound up with each other, uh, and we have to care about each other and recognize each other, and and be willing to sit down at the table with each other. Yeah, uh, and, and I think uh, you know it, that that certainly is one of those central threads that we're talking about. That really has to be at the core of it. Forget Republicans and Democrats. How about with within within any given religion within Christianity? How many yeah. divisions do we have within any one denomination or movement? Like I, I remember a few years ago when I lived in Raleigh, um, I met a, a, a Baptist minister, and he was an openly gay Baptist minister. And I said to him, "You know, according to what I know about Baptists, you shouldn't exist." Like. <laughs> How is this happening? And he sat me down and schooled me upon all the different, uh, you know, Baptists, like, you know, American Baptists and this Baptist. And I was like, I had like no idea. How do y'all keep track? And he says, well, we actually kind of don't. There's so many of us because one, you know, any given day, somebody decides I don't like what's happening here. So he goes off and forms his own like offshoot of the Baptist movement. And this happens so many times and it's, it's become, it's crazy. I, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, Brian, that uh, you've been accused of uh, making Christianity into whatever you want it to be. And I think that tension comes from those who have had clearly designed, clearly defined boundary sets or guidelines for what it means to be Christian. You know, let's say it means uh, you believe in the virgin birth, the divinity of Christ, the Trinity, um, substitutionary atonement, whatever you want to lump yeah. in there. And yeah. when you begin to say, well, maybe there's more fluidity on some of those concepts, um, or maybe in fact, and I think you've hinted at this, it could be as simple as Jesus initial invitation, follow me. Mm-hmm. And it's being on this journey of walking behind Jesus. Can it really be that simple? And why is that so threatening for folks? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think, um, Look, if, if people want to start a group and say you can only be a member of this group if you believe X, Y, and Z, they have every right to do that. Yeah. Uh, I don't necessarily want to be part of a group like that. <laughs> right. um, uh, but if, if a group of people get together and say, we want to form a community that is committed to love, we're committed to loving the creator with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we're committed to loving our neighbors, including our neighbors who are different from us in every possible way. 
we're committed to loving ourselves because if we love our neighbors as ourselves. We have to have some understanding of what it means to have a proper love for ourselves. And since all of us depend on this beautiful earth for our survival, we're committed to loving the earth. Well, if there's a group that is really committed to loving God, neighbor, self, and earth, uh, boy, I really want to be part of that group. And probably there will be beliefs that emerge from that work together. But it's very different inviting people to learn how to love than it is to invite to inviting people to be defined by opinions or statements and and so on. Um, So it's more being defined by a practice, uh, a shaping of intention than believing something. That's what I mean by way of life. Yeah. That's what I mean by way of life. It, it, it goes to the heart and, and this, I really think is what, is at the core of, you know, that primal statement of Jesus, follow me. It means imitate me. It means come on my way. I'm going somewhere. Follow my yeah. way. And uh, that, that is, he doesn't come along and say, I have some ideas. Agree with me. Um, in fact, his primary mode of communication being parable actually involved fiction. You know, his primary mode of communication <laughs> right was not information, it was works of short fiction that were whose goal was not just to get a, a point across, but to challenge people to think in a new way, to see in a new way, to have their existing categories disrupted so that they could then, you know, he, he not, and part of what he meant when he said, follow me, is I'm going to give you some simple commands. I want you to actually yeah. try them, like Love your neighbor as yourself, you know, uh, and and those that that's well, they, were, they were simple, but let's all admit they weren't easy. They're exactly oh, right. No oh, doubt, exactly no right. doubt. And so I agree with you, you know, a hundred percent. But I can anticipate uh, the classic sort of uh, Protestant or even Reformed objection. Well, is that sort of setting up a works righteousness yeah. or, or is it just about earning? And then is it a yeah. who's being most Jesus like is who's yeah. better or who's really in? And how do you how would you respond to that? Oh, boy. Well, I, I if I had time, here's how I'd respond. I'd say when you bring up works righteousness, you're bringing up the assumption a set of assumptions that what's really going on is that God is going to send everybody to eternal conscious torment in hell. And we have an argument about two ways to get out of hell. One is through working and earning. And the other is through believing the right doctrines. Right. And what I want to say is, it's not just that I have the wrong answer to that question. I think that's the wrong question. I don't think the primary thing here is about how to not go to hell when you die. I think the primary thing here is how to become the kind of person that we want and need to be and, uh, and and that God wants us to be and and the becoming of a kind of person. It's not that you have to earn anything. Work isn't about earning. Here's a way to say it. If you actually want to become a person who's fluent in Mandarin Chinese, you have to practice. It involves words, you know, yeah, it involves yeah. communication. There's no, there's no instant grace and suddenly you're fluent in a new yeah, language. It's, yeah. it's We're not in the matrix, not, no plugins. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. And it's not like saying you're trying to earn 
being a fluent Chinese speaker? No, I'm trying to speak Chinese, you know? Yeah, and I think the fear is that you're undermining grace. And what I would say is simply human existence is grace. Yeah. Breathing this breath is grace. All is grace. So there's no earning. There's no not earning. In fact, I believe in grace so much that I say, <laughs> okay, God loves me. God accepts me without me doing anything. What kind of person do I want to become in that kind of a universe? That Kaboom. Is, 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 yes. Grace is the assumption. I love what, you know, the great uh, evangelical writer, Dallas Willard, used to say, he say, <laughs> a whole lot of evangelicals are not only saved by grace, they're paralyzed by it. <laughs> yes. Oh, that is so well But said. the problem isn't grace. The problem is the set of assumptions that the real game here is an evacuation plan. That's right. And, and it's a whole set of assumptions that I think uh, it, it's high time for us to question. I don't think the fruits of those assumptions have been good. And I'll just tell you, one of the things that happened to me as a pastor, I actually had to preach from the Bible, you know, several times a week. And I started to realize that the theology I'd been taught involved cherry picking and weaving together a few disconnected verses. And when I really got into the biblical text itself, I just felt like that set of assumptions could not be found there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Forget, forget the afterlife. How do we create heaven on earth right now? <laughs> yeah. Exactly right. In fact, you know, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I was I was 42 or 43 years old before I realized one of the most obvious things, which is there is no mention of hell in the Old Testament. No, there is. Yeah. No. <laughs> yes. Like, how did I go that long without realizing that, you know, but. Well, simple oh. things like that uh, are, are so in, huge. And there is no hell in the Hebrew tradition. It's it's. Right. You know, you, you you get you get Sheol, the little you know, the post life waiting room, but but or or you know, but there's no there is no hell, and yeah. and and you know, I always you know when I teach classes, I re, I remind people, you know, the image of hell that we have, even if we no longer believe in it or we've departed from it, because in unity, like you know, in unity, we find a lot of people who have maybe departed from the religion of the upbringing, you know, recovering Catholics and, uh, you know, evangelicals, as we like to say. But, but you know, that image of hell that we have is primarily informed by Dante's Inferno. There's, you know, <laughs> there's, there's, there's not that in the Bible. A couple Sundays ago, I reminded people that, you know, Revelation is, is, is not this, like, apocalyptic battle that is really going to 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 happen in the literal this is this is this is apocalyptic literature this yeah. this is not a, a literal interpretation and i think if no other book in the bible scares people more back into that you know we have to be so focused on the afterlife that we forget to be loving and compassionate and 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 open our our table and our hearts to people here and now so yeah, we always we always got to remind people about that. Yeah. Uh, okay, I got to tell you a funny story about that. I so I grew up in this fundamentalist church, and uh, I was probably eleven years old, and it was so hard to stay awake during the church services because they were so <laughs> long and it was so many words, and I was just trying to stay awake, and I I was so desperate. I picked up a Bible, you know, and just started <laughs> anything to try to stay awake, and so. I, I'm reading Revelation at about, about a beast coming up out of the sea. 
Well, I had just watched Godzilla on <laughs> the, awesome. the old black and white Godzilla. Yes. And I thought, this is like Godzilla, you know, if he's coming to see. <laughs> so I asked my mother about it. And she said, now remember, she's a fundamentalist, right? But she right. said, well, Brian, that's, you can't take that literally. It's not a literal monster coming out of the sea. And I remember thinking, oh, no, my mother's a liberal. <laughs> you know? But it was so interesting. Even she didn't take it literally in that sense. And as a, whatever I was, 10 or 11-year-old boy, like, I thought, oh, this is cool. A monster's going to come out of the sea. <laughs> that's hilarious. So uh, we often close with a final word, and I'll read one um, statement that I love out of your book, and then if you have anything you'd like to add to that, Brian, feel free. Um, but you say, what would it mean for Christians to rediscover their faith, not as a problematic system of beliefs, but as a just and generous way of life, rooted in contemplation and expressed in compassion? Hmm. Yeah, well, that's, let's let's find out what what that would mean. Um, you know, the those two words in the last part of that sentence, contemplation and action, uh, or, or contemplation and compassion, it, it seems to me that's where our inner work of soul formation, the kind of people we want to become, that, that involves contemplation, involves the formation of the heart, but that's not just so that we can, you know, feel good. Um, it's so that we'll become compassionate people and that compassion then will drive us to action in the world. And, um, uh, you know, at the end of the book, there's a little appendix where I do a little riff on Thich Nhat Hanh, a Buddhist leader who has been challenging Buddhism in a similar way to the way many of us are challenging Christianity. Yes. Thich Nhat Hanh is saying, Look, the purpose of Buddhism is not to create a bunch of people who sit around doing nothing and feeling good inside, you know, feeling enlightened. He calls it engaged Buddhism. Compassion leads us to action. Mm. And I think the same is true in the Christian faith. Um, this thing is really about love, and love drives us to action and engagement. And that's what the world so desperately needs. And um, so that's what, you know, I'm glad that we could have a conversation about that tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Love, love God with your whole heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. And who is your neighbor? Everybody. Absolutely. Well, it's been a delight, uh, Brian. Great to have you. And uh, thanks, friends, for listening to Pub Theology Live. Please connect and spread the word on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And remember, you can listen anytime on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. And don't forget, if you want to leave us a message, a uh, question you have about something we're talking about or something you'd like us to discuss, you can call us at 980-PT-LIVE-0 or 980-785-4830. And if you'd like to find a conversation like this happening in your town, go to pubtheology.com slash directory and check out the map. And there may well be a group meeting at your local brewery or pub. And... Uh, you can find some folks who want to engage this stuff in a real way. Once again, thanks to our sponsors, Craft Beer Cellar, who you'll find at craftbeercellar.com and Wink Wine Club. And please go to trywink.com slash PT Live and you'll get your uh, $20 off of your first order and you'll be off and running. So until next time, friends, drink responsibly and keep those conversations flowing.
Awesome. Good stuff. This Pleasure was fun. talking with you guys. This was YouTube fun. Brian and Brian. That was <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs>